minutes. Okay. <laughs> ah. Got you, boy. How you doing? You look good. Come on, sit down. This is a surprise. You get that gift I sent you? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah, I got it. You like it? Yeah. Good. How's your mom? Oh, she's all right. My college counselor wanted me to come and interview you. Me? Yeah. Yeah, I'm writing essays for college applications. Good. I need your help. You got it. But, uh, this essay, the essay that I have to write, it's called The Most Fascinating Person That I've Never Met. Who are you? That's a good question. So who are you? Do you know who you are? If somebody sat down with you this week, across from a table, and they said, so who are you? Would you have an answer for them? Or would you... Respond like Denzel Washington, have kind of a strange smile on your face and think, well, that's, that's a good question. I'm not sure what the answer is. Who are you? Since the beginning of the series, we've been learning who we are. Peter has been teaching us, of course. And we've been learning, of course, that we are chosen. We're chosen by the Father, that God calls us and He draws us to Himself. And for all those people who respond to His calling, to His drawing in their lives, then we are hope. Because we have the hope of Jesus Christ living within us. And because of that relationship with the Father, because of that relationship with the Son and the Spirit working in us to draw us to Him, we are then holy. We are holy. God sets us apart for His purposes. And because we are holy, then we are family. We are God's family called to bring others into the family of God. And then we learn that we are distinct. And we make ourselves distinctive by the way we respond to others that don't treat us all that well. And then we learn that we are examples, that our very marriages serve as an example to others in this world about what true love looks like, what true commitment looks like. What it looks like to have Christ truly at the center of your marriage. And then we learn that we are mature. We are mature by the way we display grace to others, humility, harmony, sympathy, compassion. We are mature. And then we learn that we are prepared. Prepared to give an answer for the hope that is within us. And then we learn that we are servants. Servants who are all in. We don't just, you know, dip our foot in servanthood and get a little wet. We are all in. We are servants. And then we learned last week that we are tested. Because Jesus Christ, our rabbi, was tested. It means we're going to be tested as well. And now today, as Peter ends his letter, as we end this series, Peter's trying to sum it all up. 
I mean, he's been working all the way through, writing all of these things to get us to understand this main point. And as he writes, he's writing first to the spiritual leaders of the church, and then he writes to the church in its entirety, the entire congregation. And the main theme he's trying to get us to understand is this, because we've understand that we are chosen, we are hope, we are holy, and we're all these things, because we know who we are, a result of that is that we are a people who are standing firm in our faith. We are standing firm no matter what comes our way, no matter how crazy the culture gets, no matter what, we are standing firm. And to get the church to understand that, once again, he starts with the spiritual leaders and he focuses on them in order to instruct them. And in light of that, I have a question for you. How are you at taking instruction from others? Are you good at that? How are you at taking instruction from others? I've learned, I don't know about you, but I've learned that my ability to take instruction from others is directly related to how the person giving the instructions views themselves and how they come across For example, when I was in my 20s, you know, I came out of the womb singing and playing music. I traveled and sang all over. This is what I knew. And so I was a a worship leader. And then I had this new boss that showed up on the scene. He came from the beer industry. He was in his mid-50s. He he, he didn't sing at all. He didn't play any instruments at all. And he's there for a month or so. And one day he sat me down. He says, Phil, here's your problem. And I remember thinking, well, I got different problems. I wonder which one he's going to address, right? He says, here's your problem, Phil. I mean, if you could just learn how to hold the microphone correctly, if you could learn how to stand behind the stand correctly, you could really be effective. And as I was receiving this instruction, my defenses started to go up because I'm thinking, well, you have never, ever done this before. From where do you gain this instruction? And so I became defensive a bit. And I learned on that day that, you see, pride creates barriers. It just creates barriers. Humility breeds success. And so Peter, he writes, and he so desperately wants the church, he so desperately wants all of us to understand his main point, what he's been working for all along, that instead of writing from the hand of a superstar, as he was heralded to be by the Christians back then, he wrote from the hand of a servant. And with this servant's hand, he writes this letter. He writes these instructions. And as he writes, he says to them this. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder. Think, take that in. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder. And the first lesson is this, that when I'm led in humility, I'm prepared to stand firm. When I am led in humility, I'm prepared to stand firm. This is what Peter was doing. He was leading in humility. He called himself a fellow leader or a fellow elder. In reality, he was the big kahuna. He really was. And so, you know, Peter referring to himself like a fellow elder or fellow leader would be like football great Tom Brady showing up at a local flag football game and referring to himself as a fellow football player. You know, it doesn't really add up. In fact... Now that we're talking about football, did anyone see the game, uh, the Ohio State game yesterday? Anyone see that game? I'm not sure who saw that game. I didn't see the game because I was here preaching last night. But, you know, I I just want you to know, and we're talking about humility here, you know, being from Michigan and everything. um, As your pastor, if you're really struggling with that loss, if you're deep in your pain, I want you to know you can just call me. And uh, I will come over to your house, we'll pop some popcorn, and we'll rewatch the game together. Okay? 
I'll be wearing my Michigan State sweatshirt. And uh, But all along, I just want you to know I'm available. I'm here for you to kind of help you through this season, through this pain of life. Um, I am. And I just thought that was, and by the way, I thought a couple of things interesting, you know, I did see the first quarter, you know, Michigan state won with a backup quarterback in, I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, that's, that's quite something. And at home for Ohio state, I just want to mention that. So I thought that's pretty incredible, but in all humility, of course, let's get back to the text here. Um, Peter's leading in humility. And as a result of this, he refers to himself as a fellow elder, and then he identifies himself. You see, he's trying to say, okay, because of this, you should listen to me. Because of this, you should listen to me. And here's the this. He says, and I am a witness of Christ's sufferings. Because I was a witness of Christ's sufferings, you should, you should listen to this. Now, that's an odd way to identify himself, really, when you stop to think about it. If he was trying to really make his point and get people to kind of stand up and take notice, I mean, you'd think he would have identified himself as a, a witness of the resurrection. Or he could have said, you know, I was a witness of Christ's transfiguration. Only a couple people got to be on, in on that one. Or he could have said, you know what, I was a witness of Christ saying that the entire Christian church would be built upon my profession. Those are bragging rights. But instead, he identifies himself as a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And as he does this, Peter then identifies himself with the events of the crucifixion before, during, and after. And friends, these details weren't pretty. If you remember, of course, Peter failed Christ miserably. He denied Christ three times. And then in the midst of Christ's greatest suffering, as Christ is hanging from the cross, where is Peter? Peter is in hiding. And everyone knew it. You see, most people try to forget such failings. They don't draw attention to them. And yet this is what Peter does. He does so because he knew that it was due to Christ's suffering on the cross that he would one day share in the glory to be revealed. To share in the glory to be revealed. You see, as a leader who had sinned, repented, and been restored, Peter would also share in the glory of Christ's return. And Peter was saying that all of this was possible for him because of the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. Because Peter had experienced the benefits of following the chief shepherd, he then told these leaders, what? He said, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. It's one reason what we call our spiritual leadership team here the shepherding team. Because both Peter and Paul command the spiritual leaders of the church to shepherd, to shepherd the church of God. It's a curious thing, though, when you stop to think about it, and it raises the question, then, where did Peter really get this from? As he's referring and identifying himself as, you know, a witness to the sufferings of Christ, the events just prior, during, and after, we have to ask ourselves, what is he recalling from the past here that would lead him to say these words, to talk about shepherding? What event is he pulling from? You've got to wonder, what happened just kind of after Christ's resurrection? For Peter, what happened? Well, he went fishing, if you remember. He went fishing with some of the disciples, and he's out fishing. He returned to what he knew. And as he's fishing, he has no success. He can't catch any fish at all. And so in his frustration, he's out there on the water. And then Jesus, the risen Christ, shows up on the shore, if you remember the story. And he calls out to Peter from a distance and tells him, well, why don't you try casting your nets on the other side of the boat? 
And of course, Peter didn't recognize him at all. And so he thought, what do I have to lose? So he took his nets and he cast them on the other side of the boat. And as he pulled the nets up, what did he get? The Bible says 153 fish. That's a pretty exact amount. And then once he sees all of these fish, immediately Peter thinks of Jesus and he recognizes Jesus. He jumps out of the boat. He swims to shore. And it's there he has this fish breakfast with Jesus there. And it's there that Jesus asked Peter the same question three times because Peter had failed him three times. And the question, do you love me more than these? Peter said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But Christ said to him, well, then feed my lambs. Shepherd my sheep. As Peter kept recalling the season of Christ's suffering and resurrection, he exhorted these leaders to do exactly what Christ had commanded him to do. He says, you know, don't lead as you naturally would be inclined to lead. Rather, lead as a shepherd. Because if you lead in any other way, you are not going to prepare Christians to stand firm in their faith. And so after telling these leaders, you know, how they were to lead, Peter then tells them how not to lead. He says, make sure you are not leading from guilt. Make sure you're not leading from guilt. Peter told them they were to shepherd, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. See, guilt only produces leaders who serve half-heartedly. They don't really even want to be there. There's no passion. So he's saying, make sure you're not leading from guilt, and make sure you're not leading for gain. Peter stated they were not to be leaders who were greedy for money, but eager to serve. What does that look like? An example in the American church today would be a pastor, for example, who would utilize his position in the church to make you know, contacts and connections with people in order to get things for himself that other people can't get. It happens far too often. And Peter says, make sure you're not leading from guilt. Make sure you're not leading for gain. And he says, make sure you're not leading for power. He tells them that as shepherds, they should not be lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. You see, power produces leaders who seek their own agenda, not God's agenda. And very common in the American church today, you have power leaders, pastors who would lead in such a way that it's all about what they're going to do. In fact, we see this with the televangelists. They're all about sometimes their power, and many times their power brings them down. It brings them down. And then in many churches across America, you see the struggle sometimes that happen in a board. You might have somebody, one person on the board that controls really the entire board and people are intimidated by them. Or you might have a board member who seeks to control the pastor and limit what he or she's trying to do. And Peter's saying, you know what? Make sure you're not leading from guilt. Make sure you're not leading for gain and make sure you're not leading for power. Because if you're leading for power, then you should not be leading at all. Get out of the way. But, he says, but, if a person leads in humility as a shepherd with the right motivations, he says, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Take that in now. When the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, appears, when he comes back, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. I find this interesting. I want you to think about this. Because Jesus, the chief shepherd, was given a crown of what? Thorns. He was given a crown of thorns so eventually he could in turn give his under-shepherds a never-fading crown of glory. That's the kind of leader that we serve. And so now not everyone in the church, of course, is a spiritual leader. 
Most people are counter against. So now he broadens the scope to talk to everyone. And as he does this, he teaches the second lesson. When I submit in humility, I'm prepared to stand firm. When I submit in humility, I'm prepared to stand firm. And again, he brings us this whole idea of submitting. Once again, we've talked about it for like two weeks in a row. And then he's coming back to it to make sure you don't forget the whole submission thing. In fact, in order to help people stand firm in the faith, he's saying every member of the church needs to submit to two groups of people in the church. First will be those who are in authority over us. Those who are in authority over us. 1 Peter 5, 5 says, young men... In the same way, be submissive to those who are older. And it's a curious statement because he's talking to the young men. Why not everyone? Why is he saying, you know, everyone should submit? No, he's talking to the younger because I think of one important thing. And we've known this to be true. Even as you grow a little bit older in life, you know it to be true. For example, when I was in my 20s, remember when you were in your 20s? Didn't you know a whole lot? Weren't you so smart when you were in your 20s? You knew everything. Your parents didn't know anything. You knew everything. And then as you get older, as you submit, the more you submit, and what's, here's what Peter's trying to get them to understand is this, that the older I get, the more I learn I don't know. It brings you to a place of humility once again. So he's saying submit to those who are in authority over you. And then the second group, submit to those who serve alongside us is what he's saying. Think about it. Everyone in this room, you are to submit to the people alongside you. That's what Peter's saying. He says, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. It's a purposeful act. Because humility, it doesn't come naturally. We're not born with it. It's not somehow downloaded into us when we turn 18 and become a legal adult. He's saying, we are to pursue humility... And we are to put on humility like a garment. We're to pursue it like a garment. And we are to put on, what he's saying, the coat of humility. And you put it on. You pursue this coat of humility. And at first, as you do this, people see only the coat. What they see is only your kind of humble acts or your attempts at being humble. But the more you wear the coat, the more this coat becomes fastened to you, it becomes a part of you, eventually people don't see the coat any longer. They merely see humility. Are you wearing the coat? Are you pursuing the coat of humility? Peter says to put it on. Pursue this coat of humility. And why would you clothe yourself with this coat? It's an important question and there's an important answer. Why? Because Peter says, God opposes the proud. If you have pride, if you're a prideful Christian, think about it. God opposes you. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. See, somebody who's proud, they trust in themselves. They think they got it all handled. Somebody who's humble, they trust in God and know that God has got it all handled. Somebody who's proud, they give glory to themselves. Look at what I did. Look at how I got here. And when others are deserving of some kind of credit, they kind of skip over that. Somebody who's humble, they give glory to God. They say, you know what? If not for God, I would not even be here. Somebody who's proud, they're very independent. They can do this in their own strength. They're smart enough. They really don't need a whole lot of other people. Somebody who's humble is dependent upon God. Somebody who's proud, they promote themselves. They look for opportunity to take that next spot so people can see them. Somebody who's humble, they wait for God's promotion. 
See, God opposes the proud because all glory, friends, rightfully belongs only to him. And so when we seek to try to gain that glory for ourselves, we are taking back from God what rightfully belongs to him and then we're claiming it as our own. And that's why God opposes the proud. But friends, Peter's saying those who truly seek God's glory don't hold anything back from him. That means that you offer up to God what you consider to be your strengths and what you know to be your weaknesses. And so then how do you know if you're wearing the coat? How do you know if you're truly wearing the coat of humility? How does humility, how does the coat of humility kind of manifest itself, naturally manifest itself? Peter gives us the answer. He says, here's what it looks like. If you're humble, you're wearing this coat. You're going to cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. You're going to naturally cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Now, when I think about casting, I think about fishing. Not because I like to fish, because I don't. And I don't like to eat fish. A little salmon here and there. I'm just not a big fish guy. But you know what? I think about fishing. And he says, cast. All your cares upon God because he cares for you. But here's the problem for us as Christians many times. Let's be honest. Many times we're holding on to stuff and we are strong enough. You know, we can do this. We'll worry over whatever this is. We're concerned about this, but we're going we're gonna to get this done. We're going we're gonna to make sure we can do this. And eventually the worry so consumes us and overtakes us. We say, God, you know, I can't do this any longer. And we, we cast it out to God. We say, God, you got it. You got it. And then we wake up the next morning and we start worrying about the thing again. We go, man, I don't know. I, I got to do something here. And we reel it back in. We reel it back in, and so it's ours again. And so we hold on to this thing, and then we start consuming ourselves with this thing. We're worrying about this thing, and then eventually it overtakes us. We go, God, okay, here, you, you get to have this again. And we cast it to God, and then a couple hours later, something happens, and we reel it back in. And so the entire Christian life, we're casting, reeling, casting, reeling. That's a problem. The word cast in the original Greek carries with it the idea that it's a single act. It's something you do one time, not multiple times. And so when you cast your cares upon God, it's like the line just keeps going and eventually breaks and the whole thing just goes out there and you are not attached to it any longer. You cast your care upon Him. And so what do you really need to cast upon God? What do you keep reeling back in? Is it a financial concern? A relational concern in your life? Insecurities you have about yourself or about your situation right now? What does it look like for you to cast it to God and just leave it there? Say, God, you got it handled. I'm not going to be pride-filled and try to do this myself any longer. It's so important we do this. And why is it so important we wear this coat of humility? Why is it so important that because we're wearing the coat of humility, we cast one time to God and leave it there? Well, Jonathan Edwards writes, he says, The best defense that anyone can have against the wiles of the devil is a humble heart. Nothing sets a person so much out of Satan's reach as humility. Humility is a great protection against falling headlong into Satan's trap. Besides, it is hard to fall down when you are already prostrate before God. Peter teaches us, when I am led in humility, I'm prepared to stand firm. 
When I submit in humility, I'm prepared to stand firm. And now he teaches us his last lesson. When I am established in humility, I'm prepared to stand firm. You see, the cement is dry. I am so established in humility. This coat has become such a part of me that people, when they look at me, they see only humility. They don't even see the the coat any longer. I'm so established in this. And Peter says, if we are established in humility, uh, we're going to act in certain ways. But if we're not established in humility, we won't be able to be self-controlled and alert. Verse 5. We won't be able to if we we have pride in our lives. You see, a prideful person thinks there's nothing to watch out for. They got all the angles covered. They thought through every detail. They're okay. A lot of Christians like that. And as a result, such a person doesn't spend any time or very little time on the fact that Peter writes, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. See, make no mistake about it, friends. Satan is constantly prowling in your life. He's looking for any area, any crack in the door that he can kind of get through. It is an attempt, of course, to catch you off guard and bring you down. And how does he catch you off guard? How does he bring you down? Well, in a variety of ways. Through increasing your bondage to self-destructive behavior. You do this, and then you do it again eventually, and then you keep doing it, doing it, and doing it. Satan's prowling today. If that's true, and he's winning. He's winning. He's constantly prowling to catch you off guard. He catches you off guard through lies you've told or lies that you've believed. There's far too many Christians out there that believe these lies about themselves and think, you know what, I'm not all that special. I'm not all that great. And as we buy these lies, we bring ourselves down and Satan prowls and he devours. He catches you off guard with the good things you've done but with wrong motivation. So you've done these good things but then you're looking for people to notice. Satan's prowling. He's trying to catch you off guard. And so let me ask you a really good question. A question I once heard somebody else ask. What makes you lion alert and not lion desert? What makes you lion alert and not lion desert? Well, Peter says two things will make you lion alert. First, to be sober-minded. To be sober-minded. To be sober-minded means that you have an ability to look at reality with a clear mind. It means you call it for what it is. You don't try to rationalize your behavior. You don't try to explain it away. You don't play games. To have a sober mind means you look at your own activity of your life, your own behavior in your life, and you call it for what it is, and you say, that is sin. And I know I want to do it. I want to keep doing it. But that is sin. I'm not going to rationalize it any longer. I'm not going to explain it away any longer because I am living with a sober mind. Peter says to be lying alert, you've got to have a sober mind, but you also got to be watchful. Watchful. And this includes two, two facets here that's important in your life. You're going to be watchful, first of all, externally. Externally. What you're doing is you're looking for any outside force that would seek to kind of lull you in or pull you in, even to the smallest inconsistency in your life that would open up the door for future trouble in your life. Little things, like movies. Do you filter your movies? You just kind of watch whatever's there. Satan's prowling, seeking to destroy. The music you listen to, the friends you're hanging around with, are they trying to pull you into things that you know aren't right? 
How about if you're married? How about those attractive people at work you keep gravitating towards? Why do you keep doing that? Satan is prowling. How about the latest deal at work? You want to seal that deal if you've got to give up a little integrity in order to do it? And Satan is prowling. He's saying, be watchful externally for these things that would pull you towards them. And then be watchful internally. Internally. You look for any thought patterns in your life that could eventually cause you harm. I sat with a friend of mine one day uh, about seven years ago. And in the middle of this conversation, he just, out of the blue, he said, you know what, I'm having trouble with my thoughts. And then as soon as he said that, he got embarrassed and he wasn't going to talk about that any longer. We're not talking about that. And he didn't want to talk about it. We're not coming back to that. He was ashamed he even said it. And I didn't know if he was struggling with his thoughts in terms of bitterness or unforgiveness or lust. I didn't know because he wasn't going there. Over time, his thoughts became actions and his actions destroyed his life. Peter says, you've got to be watchful. Be watchful externally. Be watchful internally for anything that would seek to bring you down because this is how our chief adversary, Satan, works. But, Peter says, being sober-minded and watchful will help you to resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. See, Peter here is encouraging us that even though we might suffer for our faith, we can stand firm in the faith. And why can we stand firm? Because through Jesus Christ, we are one and we have one. I'm going to say that again. Through Jesus Christ, we are one and we have one. Jesus has sealed the final victory for us through the cross and through the grave. So it means for us that as we serve Jesus by possibly even suffering for Jesus, we live with the hope that one day all sorrow will fade away in the face of Jesus. Peter closes. He says, And the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will Himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast, he writes. To Him be the power forever and ever. Amen. And as he closes his letter, and as we end this series, what Peter is so desperately hoping is that we get it. That we get the main point he's trying to get us to understand. And it's this. That from the seed of humility is birthed the ability to stand firm. From the seed of humility is birthed the ability to stand firm. So do you know who you are? Do you know who you are? Somebody asked you, so who are you? What would you say? Peter's hope, my hope, be I, I know who I am. I am a Christian. I am a person who's standing firm in the faith. No matter what happens, no matter how crazy this world gets, and it's getting crazier all the time, no matter how opposed people become to Christianity, how negative the comments get, I am standing firm in the faith because I know who I am. I am chosen. And I am a hope because I have the hope of Jesus Christ living within me. I am a holy. And because I am holy, set apart by God, I am part of the family of God, called to bring others into the family of God. And I live in maturity. 
and I live with His love and I submit to one another and I do all these things because I know who I am and because I know who I am, I'm standing firm. Standing firm in the faith. So would you stand with me right now? Right where you are. We are standing firm in the faith. That's who we are. And here's the reality. I want you to think about this. Be honest with yourself right now. What area of your life do you keep casting and reeling? What do you need to cast upon God finally and leave it there? Are you being sober-minded? And as you're standing here right now saying, I know who I am, I'm standing firm. What area in your life possibly are you not being sober-minded? And you're standing there and God's working today and He's saying, you know what, it's time to call a spade a spade. To call it sin. Are you being watchful? In what area of your life are you being lulled towards something? And you've been playing that game for far too long. Are you being watchful today? You see, one of the keys to standing firm in our faith is to be on our knees before God constantly. Saying, God, because I'm humble, I am bowing before you. And I'm asking for your help. I'm asking for your strength. And God, I'm casting this stuff on you and it's yours. So today as we close out our service, as we close out this series, because we are a people who are standing firm, I want you to join me. I'm asking you to join me. In a moment, I'm going to get on my knees down here. I'm going to ask God to help me. There's a few things I have to cast on Him once and for all. I'm going to do that right here as I bow. And here's the thing. Pride would keep you in the pew. Pride would keep you there saying, you know what? I got this covered. It's not that bad. It's okay. Humility would say, you know what? I know who I am. And because I am standing firm in the faith, I'm getting down on my knees before God. So I invite you to